in the second of the two letters that Peter writes. Peter is one of our earliest church leaders. He's one of those that walked alongside of Jesus. He's a great example of both misery and failure and transformation and power. So he should give all of us hope in even his own journey of just kind of great success and great failure. Well, as he writes these letters, we're in the second one. Last week, beautifully, we had uh, different people leading at all three of the campuses. A wonderful job discussing and looking at how the power of God prepares us through his presence for the work that he's going to do in us. That this centering idea that God's given us everything we need. And now Peter, in this section, is going to remind us of things that are really important. I want you to think for a minute about how we remind others of the things that matter to us. How many of you here are parents? Just raise your hand. And, and even if you're not a parent, all of you have been kids at one time or other, so you understand things your parents said to you over and over and over again, right? I remember one of them in our family that Jane particularly reminded the kids, you need to wear a helmet when you're riding your bike. You need to wear a helmet when you're riding your bike. And what do kids say? I don't need that. That looks funny. It makes my hair look bad. I will never forget one of the times that one of my four children, who will remain nameless, Joel, um, <laughs> decided to ride without his helmet, and I kid you not, Jane had warned him, about two blocks away he fell and came back a bit shaken. And she had everything within her not to go, I told you so, but it was one that stayed with him. And, and it's interesting, we tend to think about things we remind each other of when there's something of concern or caution or things we fear will be forgotten, right? But we often don't remind each other of the things that matter most. You've heard the story of the old curmudgeon that's married to, been married for decades, and his wife says, why do you never tell me that you love me? He says, listen, I told you once a long time ago, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> now, please, none of you look and say that's right. That is not a model for how to live. What matters most, we often forget to say much at all, and presume and assume it is there. Now, I tell you that because Peter is contradicting this now. He is reminding us of how important it is to repetitiously tell us things that matter. So he says this in this letter, I will always remind you of these things, even though, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth as you now have. In fact, he's just been talking about what we did last week. The power of, of God unlocks the pursuit of God, which enables us to participate in the work of God. This idea that God's given us everything we need, he's already talking about it, but he's saying there's more than this. I think it is right to refresh your memory, to continue to remind you to say it over and over and over and over again. You know, interestingly, just a side note, the first text a Jewish child was taught is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. These commandments are to be a part in your hearts. And then it says, impress them on your children. Impress in the Hebrew literally means to say it over and over and over and over again, you get the point, right? I want you to understand, he's telling us, there are things I need to remind you again and again and again. And what he's gonna talk about, I believe is something often in the church today, we forget or kind of dismiss as something we don't need to know right now. 
And I'm not talking simply about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but what it leads to. So let me continue in what he says. I want you to know it's right for me to refresh your memory. He already said I'm going to tell you again and again. As long as I live in the tent of this body. In other words, I need to keep telling you as long as I'm alive. Now, make no mistake, he's telling us that's temporary, right? He's calling it a tent, meaning it's a temporary housing. Because I know that I will soon be put aside, and I'll put it aside as the Lord Christ has made clear to me. I want to stop because I want you to get Peter's perspective here. So I want to take you back to when Jesus talks to him about the end of his life. Now, it's interesting because we use this passage often to talk about our mission as a church, not the part we're going to look at, but the part that comes before. In this story, in this aspect of it, it's after Jesus is risen. And by the way, I tell this story over and over and over and over again, not because I think you don't know, but guess what? You need to know it again and again and again and again, Peter's story is very central to us in our very mission as a church. So what happens is Peter has betrayed Jesus. He's lost his status as a disciple. He's completely abandoned him in Jesus' greatest moment of need. After he's going and getting ready to go to the cross, Peter denies him three times. Now after Jesus rises, Peter is so distraught, so dismayed with himself, so given up on hope that he goes back to his job fishing on the Sea of Galilee. It's there in the story that Jesus meets him on the shore of his failure. He comes to where Peter feels most defeated and destroyed in his life. And Jesus says to him, I love you. Do you love me? And he restores Peter. He asks him three times to restore him. Peter, I know you think you'd failed, but I'm going to meet you in your failure and restore you. By the way, that's central to our mission as a church. We not only receive that, our call is to help others discover it again and again and again. What do we do? We meet people on the shore of their failures. What do we do? We meet people on the shores of their failures. That's our mission. Not only does Jesus meet him in this mission and basically restore him, he then says, not only am I restoring you, Peter, I'm going to let you be a part of this major reclaiming of the earth project. You're going to help bring about my kingdom. You're actually going to be part of leading the church to this new way of living, you get to be a shepherd. And all your failures and all your mess, not only do I restore you, I give you great purpose and calling. Now, by the way, is that not a story we should tell over and over and over again? Because that's our story, and it's the story we're called to bring to everyone around us. And that would be enough just to end there. The crazy part, though, is what Jesus tells him next. That, by the way, is not really comforting, particularly to our 21st century sensibilities. Jesus now, after he's told him all this, tells him how his life is going to end. He says this in John 21. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Now, it is very simple what Jesus is telling him. In fact, John actually implies it to us. He tells us, Jesus was telling him the kind of death that Peter would live. And then he doesn't just say that. He says this kind of death will actually glorify God. In other words, Peter's demise, his horrible ending, will lead to great things. And then all it says after that is Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Now, I want you to just rest in that for a minute because it must cause questions. I mean, how many of us go, 
I want the mission of Peter. I love the idea that God would meet me on the shore of my failure. He would move me to say, you're going to be a part of changing the world, and he'd let me be part of helping others discover it. But what if the end of the day Jesus said, you're going to get to do all of this, but the way your life's going to end is going to be suffering and difficult. Follow me. Now, why would Peter be okay with that? I just want you to consider that for a minute. Why would that be okay? Why would Peter go, whatever comes in my life doesn't matter. I've got this great mission, but even the way my life would end, the last part of it being horrible, I embrace it. Why? That's where he's going to get to in this. He's going to give us a perspective on why he can do the things he does. And make no mistake, he is not telling this from a vantage point of it's just gonna get better and be awesome. He's saying it's gonna be incredibly profound, but this life is gonna end really in difficulty for me. I know that. And when Jesus said, follow me, I said, you bet. It doesn't matter, whatever you want. Now, he continues, and you get his disposition despite knowing what's going to happen. And we believe from this writing, he's getting near it. He can anticipate the difficulties coming. This is how he continues in this letter. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. I want you to know I'm going to do everything I can that despite the outcome of the way my life will end, you are always going to know what matters most, what matters most. What matters most, over and over and over and over again. Oh, I mean, it gets me kind of jacked up just thinking, how could he have this kind of passion knowing what he was going to face? I mean, it, it, it should cause us to go, what's going on? How does he do this? And now he's telling us, you need to remember this. Now, what do you think these things are? Here he goes on to explain it. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way he discusses this. The, the language for this, this idea of cleverly devised stories, is a, is a very unique thing in its original language. When you just think of cleverly devised stories, it literally means having people of great intellect use their brain power to can conjure up something that makes sense to everyone else and makes things appear as they are not. Now, in case you don't know, this has been a common kind of criticism of the church through all of our history, that these people got together and they devised all these stories. They made them up in order to, for us to believe that Jesus actually rose, that maybe he didn't even rise, maybe none of this happened, and they made it up. And so that's been a criticism through all of history now, if you knew your life was going to end poorly, and you knew you were going to go through all this study, would you, all this struggle, would you really want to work hard to make up a story that would lead to your devastation? That alone causes you to wonder. I'll give you another one for those of you who are investigating Christianity. It's crazy, but you know none of the early believers ever refuted or recanted what they believed at the point of death? And this was not a small group. This was a group spread throughout all of Europe, all of the, uh, the Roman Empire. We're in Turkey. We're in the European area. As we get farther out, particularly in Asia Minor, none of them. I mean, when people say things like it's a cleverly devised story, it makes no sense from how we look at history and the testimonies. Now he's telling you what it's about. What it's about is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, in case you don't know, Jesus has already come by the time Peter's here, right? He came, lived, died, and rose again. So what he's pointing to right now is what we call the second coming or the return of Christ. And in case you don't realize it, this is what he's pointing to. I'll just tell you right now. You want to know what Peter's saying we need to be reminded of again and again and again and again. Whatever's going on in your life is not the end. Whatever's going on in your life, it will get better. And guess what? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Oh, oh, in case you didn't know it, Jesus is coming back. Now, it used to be in the church, some, when I was growing up, we talked only about Jesus coming back and neglected what we were to do in this lifetime. We almost looked at it like, this earth is horrible, it's terrible, get me on a rocket and get me to heaven. Now we talk all about what's going on now, but with no eternal perspective. So what Peter's gonna do is get more intense about what does this mean that Jesus is coming back and why should it matter for how we live and what our perspective is and what we're doing. And then he points to this really unique piece. He calls himself an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. Now he's gonna explain it in a minute, but basically, this is the only time this word's used in the entire New Testament. Usually when it's eyewitness, it's actually a participating in something. This particular word is about someone who's seen something that changes the way they view life. It's a very unique word to, to witnessing and watching what happens. And he's saying, what I observed changes the way I see life. Now, he's specific about what he's talking about. It doesn't simply mean that Jesus rose. It's about an experience he had. And he tells it right here. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves, he and two other guys, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, in case you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a story in three of the four gospel accounts called the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a time when Jesus is nearing his demise. He has Peter, James, and John join him on this mountain, and literally the glory of Jesus is revealed to them. That's what he's talking about, his majesty. They see him, and all that describes him is really shiny. Now, he's with Moses and Elijah, and then... God speaks and they disappear. It was a transforming event for Peter. And I can't really define it. All I can say is whatever he saw made so real to him that not only would Jesus rise, but he would move in glory. Something would change everywhere. He was exposed to it for that little bit of time that it changed how he viewed things. In other words, he saw Jesus as he ultimately would be, not just as he was. And that's all he's simply saying is, if you don't believe me, if you think this is a made-up story, I want you to understand that what I saw and experienced is unexplainable, and it changed my life. So he's basically trying to convince them as a testimony. Listen, you think, think people made up stories? I'm just telling you I saw it. What I saw, I can't explain. And not just I saw Jesus rise from the dead. I saw that too. He met me on the Sea of Galilee, restored me. I saw him go up to heaven. I saw all sorts of crazy things. But there was a moment I saw his actual glory revealed that showed me what it's like when he is over all, in all, and through all. And that perspective changed everything. But he takes it further. He doesn't go, don't just believe me. Let me take you a step further in my rationale for this. 
And he says this in the next verse. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I want you to get this picture. He calls it the morning star. Have you ever been in a situation that it just seems like it's nighttime and it's never going to change? The sun's never going to come up. Life's never going to get better. It's just one after another after another over and over and over. And the way he describes hope is it's like seeing that morning is actually coming. Something's going to change. And that's what's happened in his life. At that moment, standing on that shore, when Jesus restored him and invited him to be part of it, at that moment on the mountain when he saw the very glory in the presence of Jesus, he went, something's different for me, and there's a new hope and a new glory and a new understanding. And he's basically telling them it's all throughout Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. When I say Scripture, in Peter's mind, all that was was the Old Testament. They didn't have all the letters in the New Testament references we did. He's saying simply from the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a prophetic promise. Now, I'm not going to go to the last verse in this section, but he even elaborates on prophecy. He says prophecy is God revealing himself to us. It's not something that the individual who shares it originates. It's from God through the Holy Spirit, and he uses normal, messed up people to communicate who he is and what he's going to do. Now, Peter doesn't do this, but I want to just give you some examples of this in Scripture. For those of you who are skeptical, maybe to have you consider how this would happen and how Jesus would fulfill them. For those of you who are followers, maybe just to remind you, remember, and then consider some things differently. Now, I can't go through all of them. By the way, there are between 200 and 400 prophecies, depending on which scholar you talk to, that all point to Jesus. So I'm just going to give you a short smattering of them to give you an idea of this. So these are prophecies about Jesus. Did you know that in Isaiah, this prophet who was 500 years before Jesus, he prophesied from God there would be a virgin who would have a kid. By the way, if you read that, does that not make sense? Doesn't make sense. And in fact, one of the things you need to know is with often of these prophecies, they were easier to see looking back than looking ahead. That's just one. Did you know that another prophet said he'd be born in Bethlehem at a very different time in history in a very different circumstance? Another said he'd be a descendant of David, which he is. Another spoke of him being a suffering servant. Another speaks, several of them, of the psalmists speak of how Jesus will live and not die, that he will resurrect. And then there's this other prophecy about this reigning king. Now, there are a lot more. I don't have time to go through all of them. In fact, did you know that Jesus is talked about he would actually come out of Egypt, which happens in a very unique circumstance. Herod wants to kill all these kids. Joseph in a dream is told to go to Egypt. When the Herod dies, Joseph's given another dream and he comes back to Israel. This Messiah comes out of Egypt. For example, he rides a donkey in a very unique circumstance. He's considered a Nazarene. There's a murderous plot against him. He's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He's pierced. He's rejected. By the way, this is something to consider. These are all these different prophecies from many different prophets in many different walk of, walks of life at many different times of history, all of them fulfilled in one person. Now, could you cleverly devise a scheme to make all of that happen? No way. 
It's just something you have to consider. Peter's just kind of reminding us, if you look through scripture, you'll be overwhelmed with this mystical way Jesus has talked about and how this all came to be in one person. And then through all this stuff, with all these people with no influence and no power, they just start talking about what happened and power goes along with them and the church explodes in an area that has no power, no authority, no pedigree, no influence. Come on. Does that not help us think and be reminded over and over and over and over again of the centrality of Jesus and what he's done and who he is? But I'll tell you what matters most in this are these two differences right here at the end. It was considered when the prophets and when many of the Jewish leaders looked at all these prophecies that there would be two messiahs. That one would come as a suffering servant and one would come as a reigning king. That's how they viewed it because they didn't know what to do with these two kind of prophecies. After Jesus rose, it became clear it's not two messiahs, it's two different times. You see, he first comes as a suffering servant. He comes to pay the price, to live, die, and rise again. But after he comes and after his church begins to move in power, there will come a day when he comes back. And when he comes back, he'll be a reigning king that makes everything different and everything better and everything right. Where we live right now is not the end. Oh. I don't think we talk about this much or think about it much. It's interesting, we try to make it clear because we celebrate communion most weeks, if not every week. We celebrate it and we say this. We actually have a table. We have this at every campus. And we say there's a past event that happened, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. There's a present reality. He gives us his spirit, but there is a future promise. He's coming back. Oh, we're gonna be at the table with him and it's gonna be better than you could ever imagine. I mean, I want you to get this picture Peter is trying to help us understand just how beautiful and powerful all of this is. He's saying a very simple thing for us to know. Whatever's going on in your life, it's not the end. Did you know whatever's going on in your life, it's not the end? It's not. No matter what it is, it's not the end. And let me add to one thing to it. The best is yet to come. Now, I think that's hard for us to understand. We have people in our midst who have terminal illnesses. And God could heal it. I'm not saying that can't happen, but you do understand we will all die. Look around the room. Look around any room you're in. You will all die. We are welcome. If death were the end, wouldn't that be a horrible thing to consider? If you have a terminal illness, do you know one day you will feel better than you felt in your best days on earth? if you follow Jesus? Do you know if you're living in a mess right now and you've had such grief and pain that there is no comfort in this life, there is comfort in the life to come. Do you know for those of us who are getting older, and the older you get, the more you realize, do you know that life, even getting out of bed sometimes, is painful? Do you ever think, man, good health is wasted on the young? I would enjoy it much more at this age because I've got more seasonedness to my life. What was God thinking? He gives the young ones great life and gives us all this pain. Do you know it'll get better? Do you know it'll get better? Do you know it will get better? This is not the end. 
We live in pains of estranged relationships. We live in disappointments that the career didn't turn out the way we thought it would. We live in all sorts of things. Fill in the blank. Life didn't go the way I thought it would. Guess what? The best is still yet to come. It's still to come. And there's another side of this because some of us here, life's pretty good. In fact, it might even be great. And it's a weird thing because I don't want to tell you, well, you should make life miserable. You intentionally should destroy your life. That is not what I mean at all. But if you don't understand that as good as it is, it is nowhere in the region of what it will be in eternity. Because what starts to happen is if you have good life, you think that's the best there is. And it causes us to step back from what could be. Because what if in the best there is, Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, listen, life's gonna get harder like it did for Peter, but it'll be better. Would we step out and go, you know what? My comfort's not the end of the day what I need. And if we see things eternally and we see the best is yet to come, we actually can step out. It's the challenge we have. It's really the challenge in both circumstances. You know what, when life is difficult, my challenge is to step out and believe it will get better in this life or the next, and the next for sure. If life is good right now, my challenge is to step out and go, comfort will never be king in my life. What I have will never drive me to what could be in Christ, because there's something better. And it's the thing I think we most forget today is Jesus is coming back. Oh, by the way, Jesus is coming back. Oh, by the way, Jesus is coming back. It should get us pumped up. It's good. You realize this life is described as a breath. This life is described as grass withering, flowers fading, nothing. This life is like that. And the older we get, the more we understand it, amen? And I think even the younger ones understand it more because I don't know what it is, but somebody took the earth and spun it faster. I'm convinced of that. And I don't even think that's not biblical. Jesus speaks of this in the prophecies. He says in those days when it's difficult, it's like it's just getting worse and worse and moving more and more. I'm convinced that that's a sign of something. But man, what does it mean? What is Peter wanting to say to us? Hey, whatever's going on in your life, it's not the end. You know what? You think it's great? The best is yet to come. Will you step out of your comfort and say there's more good or bad? I'll take it. And you live in difficulty and struggle and things you never think will get better? The best is yet to come. It will get better. In this life or the next, it will get better. Jesus is coming back. Woo! Here we sit today. Jesus is calling us out through Peter. Hey, step out. If it's difficult, you step out and you embrace it. And you start looking with an eternal perspective. If it's good, you step out and embrace it. Because whatever you have is good is nothing to what God has for you? What if God has great things for you and you settled for, this is comfortable? And there's so much more that Jesus envisioned for your life. What if you sat in wallowing thinking it'll never get better and Jesus said, if you just step out, 
man, you'll start to see with a new way. That's your invitation. Feel the challenge. And you want to know the reward? The best is yet to come. For eternity, not for a few dozen, a hundred years, 120 years, whatever wonderful destiny you have is nothing. The blink of an eye. Let's pray. Lord, I ask, uh, I ask you to speak whatever is of you and true that we need. Pour life into it and into us. Change our perspective. In places of despair, let us step out and believe the best is yet to come. For places of comfort where we've settled, let us step out and live in the best is yet to come, embracing difficulty and joy, never settling. And Lord, help us remember again and again and again and again that you're coming back and we can be with you forever better than now. We pray this in your name, amen.